Legend says that the swan will make no noise throughout her life. And she'll live her life in silence. And then just before she dies, she will let out the most beautiful minor key song that ever was. She will sing forth everything that was within her, everything she saved up her whole life. Second Timothy is Paul's swan song. Uh, in 2 Timothy, he's going to, to write his very last words, chapter 4, last words of the Apostle Paul that we have. Now, 30 years previous, Paul had been up and coming. He was a rock star Pharisee. He was on his way to Damascus to totally squelch anyone who was pledging allegiance to this new Judaistic cult Christianity. He was on his way to wipe it out. And en route, you know the story, the risen, resurrected, uh, ascended Jesus shows up and, and, and Paul goes 180. And so from this point on, Paul gives his life to that which he'd been trying to destroy. He goes on at least four different missionary journeys. He plants churches throughout Asia into Europe. And Paul's got a, his life verse would probably be right here. Acts 20, verse 24. He says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now, now this race that God had mapped out for Paul, it was not going to be a cakewalk. I mean, there was going to be ridicule and pain and poverty and threats. And those were the good days, right? I mean, on the bad days, he would be thrown in jail and beaten and bit by venomous snakes and almost drowned. Uh, Paul, when we come to, to Second Timothy, is in sitting in a uh, Roman dungeon, not house arrest like he had been previous. He's, he is in the squalor at this point. And we know a couple of things from the text about Paul at this point where you would expect aged Paul, faithful missionary Paul. We'd expect him to be in Shell Point Village someplace, right? I mean, he should be in a retirement home. He should be put out to pasture with some respect. But he's chained in a, a dungeon and he's, he's cold, he's bored, he's lonely, we know, because he tells us that at this point, as he's stopping to reflect on his life, maybe, he's getting ready to die, he's in this, this prison, uh, he has no, no friends, or very, very few friends. Look, look, what, look what he mentions. Says, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. I'm guessing everyone in the province, uh, province of, of Asia. Asia is a pretty big place, right? To have everyone desert you. That's a lot of folk. And now this is really important when you think that Asia was Paul's primary uh, field of operation. This is, this is where he spent most of his work. And he had planted a lot of churches in Asia. And lots of folk had claimed, I'm following Jesus. But now Nero comes on the scene and Nero says, you follow Jesus and it's going to cost you your life. And so a lot of folk are going, whoa, second thoughts here. Maybe not. I don't know. And so they're boarding the churches up as Paul is sitting in prison. His work in Asia is closing down. And not only not, not only that, his flagship Ephesus is shutting down. Ephesus was his headquarters. It was his pride and joy. It was his, his crown jewel. The wheels are all coming off. At Ephesus, we, all, we also see, do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. Earlier, Paul said Demas was one of his pillars. Next verse. 
says, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. Not, may it not be held against them. Paul is hanging out in prison. And everything is, is going down. Can you imagine this guy? He, maybe he's thinking, I could have been. And what could have been? And he gave it all up for this Christianity stuff. And now everything is ending in, in his life. Everything is shutting down. Everything is falling apart. And he's got to be saying, man, was it worth it? What did I give my life to? You know, a couple of weeks ago, I turned 50. Now, I know some of you guys are thinking, oh, he's a mere pup, 50 years old. Yeah. But some of you guys are going, yeah, ancient of days there. Yeah, I hear it. But at that point, you do step. It's kind of a milestone year, right? And you stop and you kind of try to take inventory a little bit. And your mortality faces you more. You know you've got fewer years ahead of you than you, you've had behind you. And, uh, but also, through your experience, you realize that, that death is not a uh, respecter of age. It doesn't card you when it comes knocking at the door and the, the disease and accident happen to people of all ages. And, and, and I, I wonder that this year, 2012, uh, if in fact God would call me home, if God would call you home and you had to sing your swan song, you look back over your life, your, your faith, what you've given your life to, what would your song be? If God calls you home this year, would, would your swan song be filled with panic? Maybe trying to cut deals with God. Would it be filled with, with regret of all the stuff you were supposed to do when you thought you had so much time or all the stuff you weren't supposed to do, but you did and you thought you could fix it? Would it be filled with, with, with anger, maybe shaking your fist at God for calling your name too soon? You know, as if there's a number written someplace that any of us have been promised. If you have to sing your swan song this year, let's hope you don't. But if you do, what's it going to sound like? What's, what's, it, what's it going to be? Well, here Paul is writing his swan song. He's taking up his, his pen and parchment. He knows the only way out of this prison. God has delivered him in some major ways in the past. But here the only way out is via the executioner. And so, so he decides... To write. Now listen, this is, this is important for us. Because if the Lord tarries, and if we're still going to be around come December 31st, 2012, here's the question. Will you be closer to him? Will you be spiritually stronger because of this year or not? You get the chance. I get the chance to write our last verse of our swan song this year. Maybe if the Lord tarries. And if he, if he does, and you get to write this, what are you going to write? And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time with, with this question, but just think about it for just a second. At the end of yesterday was the end of 2011. At the end of 2011, were you closer to him, stronger spiritually than you were at the beginning of 2011? If you're not sure, then odds are high you, you, you're not. And you just don't want to repeat that again. So, so what do we do? You know, it's interesting. If you go into the, 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 I used to go to the YMCA. My wife used to have a membership there uh, so we could go free family pass. And so I would go there and I was, my kids were always there. So I was there somewhat regularly. And I remember going in in January, the weight room, you know, just packed out 80 million people in there. You got 20 minute, it's like in great America, 20 minute lines for, for every, every machine. And you're going, man, I remember asking the gal, what is this? She said, oh, it's like this every January. I said, I said well, well. Will this be like this? She says, oh, no, no, no. By, by the end of February, all these people are done. They're, they're finished. 
Oh, okay, okay. And you, you, know, you know the folk who, who, who maybe they're, to grow is a good idea. They like the thought. And so they go into the, the rate room and they want to get toned and they want their heart to be sure and all those things. And so they, they go and they, they look at that machine and it looks cool. They haven't seen one like that before. So they get on it and they get on this one over here. And this one is one they've been on before, but the line is too long. So they don't do that one. And that's going to last maybe two or three, four weeks. And then they're done. And one of the reasons why they'll be done is because they don't have a plan. Now, if you want to be toned, you want the six pack, you want the, you want, you know, just hoping that you get it or just walking into the gym is not going to get it for you. Right. You've got to have a plan. If you're serious about growing physically, you walk into that gym and maybe you've talked to the trainer and you've got your thing and you know what machines you need to work on and what, what muscle groups they fix and, and what your weight is and reps and all. you've got it all down and you keep doing this. And if you've got the plan, that's good and you are committed to it. You know what? By the end of a year doing this, you're going to be strong. You're going to be better shape. You will. Now, let me, let me read this verse for you. This is, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I don't have it on the screen. 1 Timothy 4, 7, though. Listen to what he says. It says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. In other words, don't waste your time with stuff that's useless. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Don't just hope that God zaps you with it. Train yourself. So let me ask you, what is your plan? What is your plan training yourself to be godly for 2012 so that this isn't just another wasted year? Because if you don't have a plan, you know what? Your spiritual muscles probably aren't going to be developed. Now, that's why we're doing this series, Way to Grow, we're calling it. And we're kind of going to be going over over the next several weeks a plan on the front end of 2012 that if we have the right plan, God's word, and we are committed to it, you know what? By the end of the year, we would be spiritually stronger. We will be matured further down the road anyway. We will look more like Jesus, less like ourselves the swan song that we would have to sing at the end of this year would be much sweeter than it probably is right now. So let's, let's, let's look. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles, turn there. 2 Timothy 4. And if you haven't been bringing your Bible, let me encourage you to bring one. And if you don't own one, go to the store and get one or steal one out of our pews. That's okay. Um, 2 Timothy 4. And let, let's, let's, let's look at this. By the way, Paul's writing to Timothy. I'll give you a real quick quiz. Uh, who wrote the book of James? James, yes. You, you know where this is going, right? And who wrote the book of Peter? Peter. And who wrote the book of John? John. And who wrote the book of Timothy? Paul wrote the book of Timothy, yes. Some books are named after the recipient. Some are named after the author. This is named after the, the recipient. Uh, Paul's writing to Timothy. Timothy, by the way, to our knowledge, uh, Timothy grew up in a spiritually single family. His mom and grandma were believers, but to our knowledge, his dad was never a believer. So if you're in a spiritually single situation, don't think your kids are destined for spiritual lethargy. It's just not true. Uh, Timothy's mom and grandma, though, we followed his story, immersed him in Scripture. Because that's what they, they knew, that's what he needed. Paul came across Timothy at one point, liked this guy. And took him under his wing, one of his tours, came across his flagship church, Ephesus, and installed Timothy as the senior pastor. He must have trusted this guy to let him have the crown jewels. Well, then Paul here is in the uh, Roman dungeon. He's writing 
And in chapter 4, he writes this. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Now, hang for just a second. Because the first three chapters of 2 Timothy, Paul hasn't been goofing around. You know, he doesn't have a lot of time. He knows his, his end is near, and this is, this is, he is very serious with what he's got. Limited time. He's given Timothy last-minute instructions. But when he comes to chapter 4, the tone ratchets up a couple levels. I mean, it almost goes from just urgent to sacred. Paul invokes some of the, the most intense committal language he ever uses. This is mandatory obligation stuff. He's, he's putting himself, he's putting Timothy under oath here. And what he's saying is, Timothy, in view of the fact, Timothy, that you will be judged by everything you say and everything that comes into your mind, every minute that you spend this year, you will be judged by that. Jesus will judge you according to how you spend it because of that. And because of the fact, Timothy, that everybody around you in your church and in your home and in your neighborhood, in your community will be judged. They will be judged before Jesus one day on all of those same things. And because of the fact that he is coming back, this is not just a when we die. He may come back today. I mean, this is an urgent issue. And because of the fact that we win, it's not like he might set up his kingdom and, well, we got one more battle. No, it's going to happen. It's gonna, this will happen because of that. I'm giving you this charge. This is not an option. This has got to happen. I'm on my way out. Your turn. Take it and run. It's major obligation stuff that Paul gives to Timothy. And this is the charge he gives him. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Now... You might say, well, I'm glad that's just, a, that's just a charge for a pastor. Preach the word. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, this charge is for you if you're claiming Jesus. It's, it, it, this, this command is for you if you're claiming to follow him. And in the United States, we get this idea of preaching. You know, preaching is, is you know, rah, 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 rah. That, and so we think, oh, am I supposed to be doing that? No, no, no. The word preaching doesn't mean that. The word preaching means to declare. It means to say. It means to pass along. It means to share. And what Paul is telling Timothy is share. I mean, the emphasis here is on the verbal. Share verbally God's word. Say it. Now, now there was a, there's been a saying out for some time. I forget who's been uh, uh, giving credit for this saying, although there's different renditions, and there probably was back then. And you've heard this, preach the word. If necessary, or preach the, the gospel, if necessary, use words. Have you heard this kind of thing? And the thought is, and it's probably got some nobility, you know, we've got to live it out, and we have to make sure it reflects our life. But there's a hideous abuse with that idea. And that thought is that I can, I, the, see, the way I'm wired, my personality, see, I'm not a talker, see, I'm not a gifted, I, the way I do it is I just live it out. Man, that's what I'm about. I'm just going to live it out, and somehow, through my way I pour coffee. See, people will recognize that there's Jesus and they need him. And the way I greet folk and I'm smiling, they'll just know that Jesus is real and that they need him. See, that's how I'm going to do it. I'm just going to live it out. And Paul's in here, no, 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 no. You've got to say it. Uh, Romans 10, 
This is great. Paul will go on to say this. He'll say, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone sharing with them, saying it? We can't just pour coffee in a nice way. We have to share it. We have to say it. Now, this, it's interesting when he, he goes on. He says, I want you to preach the word. He says, be prepared in season and out of season. Ah. Well, we might say, you know what? Okay, I'll share. When somebody asks me, hey, listen, how do I get to heaven? Okay, I'll share it. But until then, you know, hey, this is, this is, this is an easy cop-out for us, isn't it? See, that what we're doing is we're putting the ball in God's, God's park. And the Lord is going to have to open the door. And if he opens the door, we'll go through it. But if he doesn't open the door, what can I do? I don't want to be obnoxious here. Well, what Paul is telling Timothy is, no, no, you're supposed to share the word. When it's, when it's convenient. And when it's not, that's to be prepared in season and out. You're supposed to share when you get applause for doing it. And when you get stoned for doing it. You're supposed to share when it's comfortable and when it's not comfortable. When you got time and when you don't have time, you're supposed to be sharing his word on a regular basis. And this is the issue for Timothy, what's going on with him in his church. He's got false teachers coming in, intimidating folk, people who are countering him and saying things other than he, what he would want to be said. And he knows if he counters these guys, it's going to be a bad scene. And, and he, we do the same thing, don't we? We gauge on how much we share based on, on the barometer of the, the atmosphere, don't we? If we think it's going to be friendly towards what we're saying, we share more. But if we think it's not going to be friendly, you know what? We clamp down. We've got to be quiet here because it may not be friendly. What he's saying is be prepared in season or out of season regardless of that climate. You've got to be sharing forth the word of God. You have to be. You just have to be. Now, this is a uh, interesting thing because sometimes we'll say, you know what? Okay, then I'm just going to get on my desk get work, school. I'm going to start, oh, I'm going to hold the John 3.16 thing up at the, uh, at the end zone. You know, ah! Paul's not necessarily advocating that, but he is advocating this. John chapter 4. Remember the story? Jesus is at the, he's at the well. He's hanging out midday by himself, but he's got an appointment. And all of a sudden, his appointment comes, the, the, the gal if she comes, is she looking for a sermon? Is she looking to hear the Christian, Christian message? No, she just wants to get some water. She's trying to avoid gossip. She's on her fifth husband. She is, that she is not interested in a sermon right now. But Jesus knows she needs one right now. He knows she needs the truth. So he's not going to wait. Maybe she'll ask me. Jesus opens the door. Acts 17, Apostle Paul, he goes to, to Athens. He's on Mars Hill. A bunch of philosophers are up there. Are they interested in hearing the Christian message? No. But Paul knows they need it. So he opens the door. So what? What he, he's telling us, what he's telling Timothy, is you have to share God's word. Always be trying to open the door because they need it. Because they need to say it. Now, there are some goals. There are some object- objectives. You know, when I was a kid, I used to think that, that the objectives was to, just to say it. 
You know, I could just say it. See, that was the winner. And so I would, I would, we did a lot of cold turkey evangelism stuff, and I'd ring the doorbell, and they would come to the door, and I got slammed in the door in my face too many times. So I developed a plan. They, they, would, they would open the door, and I would say, so I want you to know that I'm from the association church and Jesus died for your sins. And if you die, I don't get accepted. You're going to go to hell. And so I just had to get the message out before they slammed the door. Because if I did, before they slammed the door, yes, that was the goal, to say it. Paul says that's not the goal. There's a goal, though. He says, I want you to say the word. I want you to correct, rebuke. And encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The co- correct part is, is, is you find this in Acts. I think it's Acts 18. Remember, Apollos, he's preaching God's word, but he's a little bit off on some of his doctrine. So a couple, Priscilla and Aquila, pull him aside, not in front of other people, and they correct him. This is for those folk that we might, we might see in our small group. We might see in our circle of friends who claim to be Christians, but they're doing something they really ought not to be doing. Paul says, you're, you're, you do not have the privilege. I do not have the privilege of just being quiet and let them choose their own path. If they're claiming Christ, gently we pull them aside and we correct them. Hey, this is what God's word says. That's what we're supposed to do. And if you don't like that one, you really won't like the next one. Because he says the next word is rebuke. And this is a very, very strong word for stopping somebody who is advocating uh, just teaching that is straight up against God's word. Now, now, please use some discernment here. We're not talking about legitimate interpretive differences. We are talking about teaching that is straight up against God's word. Listen, if you are in a small group and you, you, someone decides to say something with authority, but it's heresy, you cannot say in your mind, well, if I call this person on it, it's going to make things awkward and everyone's okay with their own interpretation. And maybe the rest of the people in the group just realize anyway how off the wall this is. And so they're not going to buy it. If someone in your Sunday school class, if someone in your small group, if someone, youth leader, someone, one, one of those students advocates something that's heresy, your job is to love them, be sensitive, but to say, you know what, I can see maybe where you're coming from on that. However, God's word says just the opposite. That kind of teaching is damning. That's our responsibility. Now, you, this is kind of a scary thing, isn't it? I mean, in our PC world, this is a tough thing to tell somebody they're wrong. But if you love, you'll, you'll tell them they're, they're, they're wrong. You will come up with it. Is it uh, uh, let's go on. Let's go on. We'll get in a second. Uh, encourage. And the word encourage is simple enough. That is, is really what we think of when we think of Bible study as a whole. You open God's word. It speaks to us. It shows us what to live. Uh, how to do life. This is not the word that says, good job, you know, you did okay. This is just instruction. This is what we think of when we think of Bible study. He says, you're supposed to share God's word with people for these reasons. And then there's a couple of occupational hazards that we have when we share God's word, especially if God has called you to do it in a formal way. When he says, with great patience. I remember when I taught uh, uh, youth. Oh, my goodness. See, it's okay to teach adults because if they're not interested in coming, you know what, they just don't come. But youth, sometimes parents make them come, don't they? And I'm not saying we shouldn't. Maybe we should. But you work hard, and you're there trying to teach the lesson, and the paper airplanes are going, and the people are texting, and they're talking, and they're laughing, and they're crying, and they're sleeping. And this is a stinking circus. And you're going, for crying out loud, I put all, I might as well read the phone book for crying. You know, this what is going on here. And I wore out my Sunday school teachers over the years, and my youth leaders. I went through a bunch of them, I'm telling you. But once in a while... And this is why Paul, I think, says you've got to teach, but you've got to do it with great patience. Because once in a while, Mrs. Coyer would say something, and I'm paying no attention. 
In all honesty, she's a bit boring. But once in a while, Holy Spirit would, would work with something she said and be like, I woke up. That's right. Or, I can't believe God is like that. And I don't think I ever shared that with her. But it marked me. And Paul says, you don't know. So, so, so teach with great patience. In another word, he says, and with careful instruction. Oh, my goodness. You know, when everyone has a circus going on, or people come and they all listen, they all nod, but then they go out and they live hell-bent lives, you're thinking, you know what, what is, I'm killing myself here, knocking myself, why should I do this anymore? You know, I'm just going to pop a video, or I'm just going to, we're going to read the, 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 the curriculum guide together, you know, or we're just going to do something, be, play some games. Uh, now, now, 2 Timothy, Paul, Paul says this, 2 Timothy 2. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Listen, is this just me? I think that if it says who correctly, if you can correctly handle the word of truth, then you can incorrectly handle the word of truth, right? Now, now let me go off on, on a tirade for a minute. This is, this, is, this, is, this is a soapbox for me, but it's so, 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 so important. Please, please. Uh, if one day God calls you, you have to leave town and you have to go pick a new church. You have to understand this. This is so important. That, that communication skills are not the same thing as accurate teaching of the Word of God. They, they just are not. And, and so you go hear somebody and they're, they're sincere. They, they are sincere. You know what? I want sincerity before I want insincerity too. I'm there. But if they've got a verse and they're sincere, they really believe it. It doesn't mean that it's accurate teaching the Word of God. You know, you know, you go there and they're passionate. Oh, they're very passionate. They believe this and they're crying and they're upset and they've got a verse. And so we think, oh, this is so good. But, but, but please, we've got to be more discerning because passion does not equal the Word of God. Adolf Hitler was a passionate communicator. And, and he was so passionate that he could grab the people and pull them in because they weren't discerning. This has happened in our churches in the world all the time. Just because someone is passionate, that doesn't mean it's been given with careful instruction. It's been careful teaching. It's important to us. It's important to you. If you have to go, God's going to call you to Albuquerque one day. And you choose a church. Number one thing. You have to choose it based on how do they handle the word of God. Not, 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 is their music real cool? Not is, is it kind of entertaining? You know, the guys, guys are juggling everything else. It's wonderful. Uh, but, but first and foremost, how do they handle the word of God? Now, if you can handle the word of God well, and you can juggle, good. <laughs> That's fun. Good, let's go that one. Pick that one. Uh, but it's very, very important. Because Jesus said that, that we're to be sanctified, we're to grow by thy truth. Your word is truth, and a distortion of the word of God will not lead to sanctification. It just won't. It will lead to a faulty faith, a shallow faith, and when the winds come in, and when you're trying to pass along a shallow faith, a lot of folk in the world can see right through that. It just leads to destruction in his church. So the most important thing we've got to be about is, isn't this interesting, Paul's very last word to Timothy. It's not necessarily make sure your systems all are in place, but Timothy, you've got to make sure the word is accurate. You've got to keep going, regardless of the heat. 
And, and regardless of whether you think people are paying attention or not, you have to give the word it, its due. It has to go forth accordingly. Um, John MacArthur tells a, a story of, of uh, he got a letter from one of the co-eds who went to his, his church at one point. And she said that how you know, she taught little kids in Sunday school, the little girls, and she loved their curls and she loved their, their frilly dresses and she loved their mannerisms and the way they would pray. She just loved her class. He said, but, you know, she's a student. And so there are a lot of Saturday nights, you know, she's working or she's got to go out with her friends because she's so busy. And so she doesn't get in until late. And so the, the teaching that she gives Sunday morning sometimes isn't really up to speed. And so she wrote in her letter, she said, then one Sunday morning, I realized that the only thing these little girls really need is the word of God. And it's what I was shortchanging them with. I don't really love them. If I really loved them, I would make sure that I gave them the word of God as as best as I could. We have to. We just have to uh, give God's word its due. Uh, This this there is the charge. Now, there's some reasons for the charge that Paul lists. He says that uh, verse 4, verse 3, he says, For the time will come. When men will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say with their itching ears, want to hear. The first reason why we we have to be committed to God's word. And by the way, this is where any plan to grow. If you think you want to cut this one out, this is the this is the foundation. This is the basis. You cut this one out, might as well cut them all out because the rest are, are useless. The first reason is because we're in a truth war. The, the, the environment we live in, people's hearts are not on a default system towards truth. They're on a default system towards untruth. Let me, let me prove this to you. You're struggling with something. And so you bring your friends around you. And when they say what you want to hear, what happens? Oh, we love it. It's confirming. That's right. They're such discerning people. But if they say something that is against what we think, what do we say immediately? Well, they don't understand. They don't know. Well, maybe they know more than we think. We just don't want that to be true. Often we choose what we want to believe in, not because of what's really true. We talk ourselves into saying that, but that's not really so. It's what we want to hear. Well, that's what the world is as a whole. We're in a truth war, and it's, and it's major. I was at uh, Moody. And uh, I was, it was actually just before I got there, the summer before I got there, I was there for a summer school outdoor evangelism class. And we, we went to the Loop, which is really right downtown, skyscrapers everywhere at noon. Very busy place. That's why you're there, right? And we set up our board and we were all ready, a team of about 12 of us. And, and uh, we were in black Muslim territory, probably not the wisest thing in retrospect, but we were there. And, and just before we started our meeting, what, what happens is we set up the, the, the board and the paint board and illustrations, and then the rest of the team kind of disperses a little bit, and people start stopping to look and see what's going to happen there. And all of a sudden, around the corner came about, I don't know, 10 members of, of the black Muslim football team. I mean, these guys were big, and they, they were, a, a, I think, a militant part of the organization, truly, because they had them berets, and they came marching up, and they just stopped in front of our group and just stared down the speaker and we thought oh this is going to be hairy so we tried to engage them but no they wouldn't talk to us at all and they just waited and as soon as the speaker started to preach the must have been the leader walked up 
and went nose to nose with this guy and started screaming in his face. And then one of them in the back holds up a picture. Probably you've seen it in Sunday school room. Or you got it in your house of a very fair skinned Jesus, long flowing blonde hair. And, and he was holding this thing up and he was screaming. These people want you to believe in a white God. They're saying you have to call the white God your master. You need to be his slave. You know, just very racist. But just screaming. And then uh, the whole, all the guys took us on. And I must have been recognized because one of them came to me and, he's, and just, just screaming and screaming at us. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is going south. And what, what do we do with this? I look over at my peripheral and our, our leader, the guy who's our teacher, and he's the one who looks more like he should be part of the group than the rest of us, is just standing there. No one's touching him. And all of a sudden I see this teenage uh, African-American guy go up to him. And I think, okay, he's getting engaged now, too. Good for him. And then... Uh, uh, they're, they're, they're t- this guy's yelling at me. I'm kind of looking. And I notice that they bow. And, and the leader puts his hand on this guy's shoulder. And we're told, never touch. Because when you touch, they look for an opportunity to, to hit you. you know? And so you just don't want to. But he puts his hand on the shoulder of this kid. And they're praying. And then he reaches in the van. He pulls out a Bible. Anyway, after this was all done and we finally got out of there, he said that, hey, this, this, the leader said this, this 17-year-old guy came to him and said, uh, African-American kid, and said, why in the world would you do this? I mean, look at you guys are being taken on. You guys are being crucified here. Listen, I want any Jesus that would cause you to do this. I need this kind of motivation in my life. Tell me about Jesus. And the kid gave his life to Christ. When we share, you know what? There's going to be people who don't. We, we clap for that. That was good. That was, you know, that was a good thing. But you know, as well as I do, that there will be people when we share who, who, uh, Persecute us because of it. There will be. But there will be people who God's been working in their heart who will respond. Who will respond. That's why we have to. We're in a truth war. The stakes in this truth war are heaven and hell. It's very, 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 very serious. Another reason he gives us another motivation. Verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. Second reason why we have to take this charge seriously is because it's our turn. You know, dishes in my house sometimes in the evening can be an interesting thing as we try to figure out whose turn is it to do the dishes. It's not my turn. I did lunch. Well, it was supposed to be my turn. But see, I filled in for her and she didn't do them for the last three days. And so by the time we're done, no, it's nobody's turn to do dishes. You know, Uh, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy. It's your turn, man. I've done this. They won't let me do it anymore. I'm finished. And so Paul is handing the baton to Timothy, just like Moses, when he got done, handed it to Joshua. And Elijah, when he got done, handed it to Elisha. And Paul's handing it to Timothy, saying, it's your turn. Throughout the history of the church, God has called people, saying, you know, it's your turn. And there were certain climates in the history of the church, you know what, where they were applauded. And there were certain climates in the history of the church where they were literally crucified for it. And he would come to us now and say, you know, give us the baton. Say, it's your turn. It's our turn with this. Listen, if we don't share God's word, who's going to do that? Where's that going to come from? Now, now... You, you might say, you know what, hang on, just hang on a second. Because you know what, um, I want to, but I, I, I don't know how to talk. 
fuck. I get it all mixed up. I get my adverbs and adjectives mixed up, and I'm going to be some grammarian's nightmare trying to, and I'm going to get all the content wrong. And listen, it's just not me. You can't use that excuse because Moses already tried that one on God, and it just doesn't work. In Exodus 4, verse 10, he says, says, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. I just can't do this. But look what God says to him. The Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. You say, well, you know what? Um, bottom line is, I'm just too young. See, I've got to get older. I've got to go to college. I'm just I'm junior high. I'm high school. I'm college. I'm, I'm the youngest guy on my firm in my office. Well, yeah, you, can, you can't use that one either. See, Jeremiah tried that one time. didn't work. This is Jeremiah's response. I said, oh, sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But look at God's response. The Lord said to me, do not say, I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them. See, God knows the real, real issue isn't he was worried, concerned about his age. No, nah, his fear. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. We might say, you know what, I, I, I just don't, have, I'm new in my faith. Or I've been, really, I've just been slacking a little bit. And I don't know the stuff I need. And they're going to ask me questions. And I'm not prepared and I'm not ready. And, and this isn't for me. You can't go down that road either. Amos, he tried to do this. But see, Amaziah said to Amos, get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. But look at at Amos' response. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now then. Hear the word of the Lord. Don't you love Amos' response? Saying, you think this is my idea? Come on, I don't have a clue. I have no prophet's blood in me. I know that. I'm just a farmer. I'm a picking fig farmer for granite lot. I don't know what I'm... But God said, go. And so I'm here. I, I, I'm, 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 a, I'm a medical doctor. You can't talk like that in my circles. But God said, go. I don't, I'm a teacher. I, I'm not supposed to. God said, go. I'm an engineer. You don't say, I didn't go to somebody. God said, go. God said, talk. I'm a clerk. I'm a salesman. God said, go. We're in a truth war. It's our turn. It's nothing we can pass off to somebody else. The baton's been handed to you, and you can decide you don't want to run, and you're not going to do it. But this is obligatory language that Paul's using. It's our turn. You're claiming Christ. It's your, it's your turn. There's another reason. And that's because the battle is almost over. Verse 7, he says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Remember when Paul first started down this road, Acts 20, 24, says, I count my, my life of nothing, no value to me, my only desire and goal in life 
is to finish the race that he set before me. Look what he says here at the very end. I finished the race. I've done it. End of 2012. Will you say the race that he mapped out for me in 2012? I ran it. I finished it. I did what he could. Not nothing to do with 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 the applause or the the, the pain I would get because I, I just ran the race that he gave for me to do. The end of 2012. What will your swan song be? Especially if he calls you home this year. Will it be pulse or will it be of of the world? Uh, it can be a la Barabbas, if you desire. It goes like goes like this. It says, and now the end is here, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway and more, much more than this. I did it my way. Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. Yes, there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more that I could chew. But through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all, and I stood tall and did it my way. I've loved, I've laughed and cried. I've had my fill, my share of losing. And now, as tears subside, I find it all so amusing to think I did all that. And may I say, not in a shy way, no, not me, I did it my way. For, for this one he says here, for what is man... What has he got? If not himself, then he has not to say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. End of 2012. We're going to God tarries. We're going to live it. When it's all done, will you be able to say, you know, I've lived it my way. Or I finished the course he has mapped out. For me, the first commitment and a, and a plan to grow be the commitment to follow him according to his word, sharing it along the way. It's where it's got to start. That's one of the reasons why we have the New Year's challenge. But it's much more than just the knowing. It's the living and the sharing.